Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. The church in Thessalonica had been planted by Paul and Silas when they visited there in Acts 17. There was a strong Roman presence focused on emperor worship as well as many hostile Jews in that city. And so in his first letter to them, Paul commended the Thessalonians for standing strong in their commitment to Jesus despite the incredible persecution and suffering they had to endure. He understood that following Jesus as king produces such a countercultural way of life that conflict with our neighbors over our beliefs is sure to arise. However, our response to their hostility should always be that of love, grace, and generosity, motivated by the hope that we have in the coming kingdom of Christ. Paul knew that the brothers and sisters in the church of Thessalonica were not only loved by God, but they'd been specially chosen by him. Their lives had been transformed and the news about their commitment to Christ had spread like wildfire. They were not ashamed of the gospel and they were willing to risk persecution for the sake of bringing others to faith in Jesus. They had suffered at the hands of their own countrymen, but Paul encouraged them to think about Christ's return when everything would be made right, and the righteous would be rewarded while those who were against the Lord would face God's justice. Paul looked forward to that day when we all stand in God's presence, and, you know, it seemed to make him long for the Thessalonians even more. As we continue in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2 verse 17 Paul declares but brothers and sisters when we were torn away from you for a short time in person not in thought out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you for we wanted to come to you certainly I Paul did again and again but Satan stopped us for what is our hope our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. After the uprising against Paul in Thessalonica, he and his companions had gone to Berea until the same thing happened to them there, forcing him to escape to Athens. It was very evident that Paul loved the people in Thessalonica and he felt that he had been forcibly separated from them far too soon. For some time, he had longed to see them again and in fact, he'd made several attempts to do so but had been unsuccessful each time. And now he told them of how Satan had thrown up roadblocks to prevent his return. In our last lesson, we realized that that might have been in part due to the peace bond that had been paid by Jason and other believers in the city. The peace bond was a large amount of money, or perhaps it was even something like Jason's house that was held in collateral that would have to be forfeited if Paul ever returned to Thessalonica. And so, although Paul wanted to come to them, 
on several occasions, he was prevented from doing so. But though he was physically separated from them, he says he was with them in thought. And Paul speaks of the believers in Thessalonica as being his hope, his joy, and his crown. In Greek, there are two different words for crown. There is the diadema, or royal crown, which is solely used of the crown that Christ wears. And then there is a second type of crown, the Stephanos, or the victor's crown, that Paul uses here when speaking of himself. This was the type of crown that was given to victorious athletes who won their sporting events. And so it is as if Paul is saying here that his greatest joy, his highest achievement, his reward is them. His greatest victory in life was seeing those he had led to the Lord living in a way that glorified God. No wonder he longed to see them again himself. But unable to go to them, he reveals in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. Any parent or teacher who's poured themselves out on behalf of those who have been entrusted to them will tell you of how they not only hope that they continue to do well, but they also long to know how their students or children are doing. For example, I remember with my own children, when they uh, went to university, they were quite far away, and day after day I would pray for them, and I would often pray the words of Paul. Paul from Colossians 2 verse 8, asking God to see to it that no one would take them captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. I prayed for them a lot, but I was not able to see them often. But still, I longed to know how they were doing and how they were holding up under the pressures around them. And Paul is no different in his desire to see how his spiritual children were doing. And eventually, when he could bear it no longer, he sent Timothy to them to check up on them. Timothy was no ordinary man. Paul considered him to be his brother in the Lord and also God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ. He sent Timothy back to those in Thessalonica for a purpose, and that was to strengthen and encourage them in their faith so that no one would be unsettled by the trials that not only they were suffering, but that they knew Paul was suffering also. Paul reminded them of how when he had been forced out of their city, he had told them that it came as no surprise to him that his message was unpopular with some and that they would go as far as to persecute him. After all, he said he had been called to suffer for Christ's name. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if you were to look in Acts chapter 9, where Paul encountered Jesus for the first time on the road to Damascus, you'll see that after initially being 
blinded by the light of Christ's appearance, Paul became a Christ follower when one of God's servants, a man by the name of Ananias, laid hands on him and restored his sight. It was at that time that God called Paul to be a minister of the gospel, saying, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So you see, from the very beginning, Paul knew that he was destined for trials and persecution because of the gospel or because of the name of Christ. He had warned them of that when he was with them, and it had turned out to be true. But that being said, Paul was not concerned for himself. He was concerned for them. Look at verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. So when Paul could bear it no longer, he sent Timothy to find out how they were doing. He'd been worried that the tempter, Satan, had used all of the riots, the persecution, and even Paul's own suffering to dissuade them from following Christ. And, you know, I think that that's often Satan's tactic, actually, to not only discourage Christians when the going gets tough, but also to cut them off from those who would have a positive effect on their faith. However, the good news is that Satan cannot cut us off from the Holy Spirit. Paul was delighted to hear from Timothy that for all their trials and their sufferings, God's people were doing well and actually growing in faith and love. Not only that, but their opinion about Paul had not been changed at all by what had happened to him. The fact that he was cast out of one place after another had not been used to persuade them that something was wrong with him or with his message. In fact, they had pleasant memories of Paul and his companions and longed to see them again also. Make no mistake, though, life was not easy for Paul. He was suffering incredible distress and persecution, but he was concerned for them, and he was greatly encouraged on hearing of their continued faith in the Lord, knowing that they were standing firm in their commitment to Christ really invigorated Paul. It made him feel as if he was really living. And he felt such incredible joy in the Lord's presence because of this news about them that he wondered how he could ever thank God enough for them. And he wondered how he could ever repay them for the encouragement that they were to him. 
Can I just say, as a teacher of God's word, nothing is more important than to see those you've ministered to continue to grow and flourish even in your absence. The Apostle Paul felt the same way. He put it this way in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, when he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It was no different for Paul. He delighted in the fact that his work with them had not been for nothing. But though the news about them was good, Paul didn't want to give up praying for them. In fact, his joy and gratitude actually drove him to pray more earnestly night and day for God to somehow use him to again build their faith in Christ even further. And notice how he continues to pray as he references again the second coming of Christ. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Paul always modeled what it was to turn to God for help in all things. He knew that it was only God who could help to remove the barricades that Satan had put up. But irrespective of whether those things were removed and what the outcome would be, Paul knew that his prayers for them could not be stopped. And so the big question is, what did he pray? Did he pray for their persecution to stop? Did he pray for them to have an easier life? No, he asked the Lord to make their love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. He asked that God strengthen their hearts so that they would be blameless and holy. And finally, he prayed that they would be found in God's presence when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, when that great triumphant procession arrives on that final day. He prayed that that the Christians in Thessalonica would be found in Christ's presence, even as they had always been in relationship with him. Trying to live life without God's help is an impossible assignment. Paul reminds us to commit everything to the Lord and to focus on eternal things like love, holiness and faithfulness, rather than on temporary relief from our circumstances. As with previous chapters, Paul once again encouraged believers to look to Christ's second coming, reminding them that the life of the Christian should be one of unbroken fellowship with Christ, both now and when we finally see him face to face. Paul then goes on into chapter 4, to instruct them about how that they should continue to live to please God. And, you know, this still applies to us today. Look at verse 1. Finally, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So Paul commended them for living in a God-honoring way, but he didn't want them to be so satisfied with what they'd already achieved that they make no further effort. 
He wanted them to continue to be careful about living to please God. And in fact, he asked them to follow his teaching even more closely because it had come by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And Paul was very specific in telling them what they were to focus on. And his words really apply to us equally today as he goes on to say in verse 3, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of them. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Paul begins by saying that it is God's will that we be sanctified. And that was actually nothing new because God had always told his people that they were to be holy because he is holy. And that's really what sanctification is. Sanctification is the process of developing holiness and becoming more like Christ so that we can truly be used by God. But Let me be clear, it is a process. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 in the New Testament tells us, speaking of Christ and his sacrifice, for by one sacrifice he, meaning Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Holiness is something that develops over time, and sanctification is an ongoing process. And so our goal really has to be to please God more and more the longer that we walk with him. And Paul is particularly clear here about the need for us to avoid sexual immorality. Now, it may seem strange to us that Paul would immediately focus on the need for sexual purity among Christians, but we have to remember the culture that Paul was speaking into at the time. The Thessalonians had not been Christians for very long when he wrote this letter, and the culture that they'd come out of was exceedingly immoral. Not only did the worship rituals of false gods often involve sexual acts, but marriage vows would disregard Guarded and divorce was common even then. The Jews, for example, were supposed to hold marriage in high regard as being from God, but in reality, even they had made divorce very easy. In Deuteronomy, Though the law of Moses had said that a man might divorce his wife if some matter of shame was found in her, what that matter of shame was exactly was left open to interpretation. Though some rabbis rightly held that it referred only to adultery, others said that it might be a matter of shame if a man's wife burnt his food or if she spoke in a loud enough voice for the neighbors to overhear. They twisted the truth of God's word, you see, in order to fit it to their purposes, making the dissolution of marriage easy. 
The Roman Empire was no better. Divorce was also rampant in that society. For example, the historian Jerome wrote of the fact that there was a woman in Rome who, at the time of his writing, was married to her 23rd husband. Mind you, the husband she had been married to had also been married 21 times before himself. That was not uncommon. In Roman culture, morality was dead, and it was no different for the Greeks. They kept their marriageable women indoors, secluded from all outside contact. A woman's sole function was to bear children while her husband was allowed to have as many extramarital affairs as he wished. And it was to people who had come out of these societies that Paul wrote, revealing that each of them had to learn self-control and that they were to live in a holy and honorable way, particularly with regard to sexual purity. They couldn't be driven by the same lustful passions that drove those who did not know God, and they couldn't take advantage of others, as was so often the custom. And really, this is no different for us today. As those who follow Christ, we are also called to purity. We cannot live according to the ways of the world around us. That is not God's way. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. He will eventually punish all that kind of lifestyle. And we have to realize that if we reject this instruction, we aren't rejecting Paul's ideas. We're actually rejecting God himself. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we cannot defile it with immorality. We are to live differently to the way that we once did before we came to faith in Christ, knowing that all of those sins are now washed away. They're under the blood of Jesus. But as we walk forward, we need to walk in the holiness that Christ asks for. Everything we do is to be founded on a love for God that spills over to others. Verse 9, Now about brotherly love we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This passage really begins with praise and then ends with a warning. And with the warning, we get a glimpse of one of the reasons Paul had for writing this letter in the first place. Paul commended the Thessalonian believers for the way in which they cared about those in the body of Christ, and he urged them to continue. However, he also advised them to keep calm, to mind their own business, and to continue to work for a living, because it seems that all the talk about Christ's second coming had apparently produced an odd and difficult situation in Thessalonica. 
where many of the believers there had given up their daily work. Ordinary life had been disrupted as many of them waited about in excited groups for Christ to come again. And yes, Christ will come again and no one knows the hour. But Paul wanted them to understand that it would be far better for Christ to find them diligently at work whenever he did return. And he reminded them that their Christianity should not turn them into useless citizens because that would spoil their witness to others. They needed to win the respect of outsiders by the way in which they lived. Just as a tree is known by its fruit, so too Christ is known by the fruit that is produced in our lives also. You know, I remember when um, I was a new believer, how someone once said to me, your deeds may be the only sermon the people around you ever hear. And it's true, God can use the transformation in us to preach the truth of Christ's power to others. Now, I'm sure that as we think about this, there are some of us who might wish right now that we were actually a better witness for Christ to others. But I can honestly say that we don't always know how our actions might speak to someone else. I discovered the truth of that several years ago when I lived in Africa. There was a lot of need in the area that we lived, and although I'd never grown up with someone to help in the house, it seemed only right to my husband and me that if we could afford to give someone else a job, we should. And so a wonderful woman called Dorcas came to work for us. We, we didn't know the Lord when we first employed her, and she didn't know him either, but my husband and I came to faith not long afterwards. I hesitated to share the gospel with her, though, because I didn't want to make her feel as if she was being pushed into a corner by her employer. I wanted her to know about Jesus, but I didn't want her to feel as if she must accept him in order to please me. And so I said nothing for some time. My husband and I started to work with the youth in our area, and I found a wonderful way to demonstrate the truth of the gospel to kids that clearly showed that as good as things like education and good deeds might be, on their own, those things can't change a person's heart. Only Jesus can make us new. He can not only cleanse us through his sacrificial death on the cross when we ask for forgiveness, but he can keep us clean as well as we continue to walk with him as our shepherd. So, I decided to do this demonstration for Dorcas, not only to ask her what she thought of it, but also to start a conversation where I could share the gospel with her. When I'd completed my presentation, I asked for her opinion, and she replied, yes, this is exactly what I believe too, and he has changed my life completely. Well, I was amazed, and I said, Dorcas, when did you put your faith in Jesus? And to my great surprise, she told me something that I never expected to hear, as she declared, I came to faith when I saw how you and your husband's lives changed after you became Christians. 
Let me tell you, we were not perfect, but she saw us living in a relationship of grace with our Lord as we allowed him to direct our lives in new ways. And she saw how we began to serve him and love others, and that really affected her. You never know how God will use you in the lives of those around you, so don't give up. Of course, though we hope for stories of triumph and victory, the truth be told, our actions do not always have that desired effect on people. For example, my own father saw how our lives changed at the same time that Dorcas did. However, to my knowledge, it did nothing to bring him to the Lord. In fact, our newfound faith seemed to be a great irritant to him as a self-professed atheist. He thought that faith was for weak people who needed a crutch. I hope that he came to change his mind about that, but he died a few years afterward. And though we trust that God gave him every opportunity, we unfortunately never knew for sure if he yielded to Christ or not. You see, everyone is free to make their own choice. But irrespective of their actions or their choices, we are to live in a way that brings honor to the Lord, knowing that he will use it. Let's pray. Father God, I really pray that you would help us in our witness to others, that you would make our love increase and overflow not only for each other, but for everyone else as well. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts so that we would be blameless and holy. And also I pray that we would be focused on Jesus and found in his presence when he returns. Lord, when Jesus comes on that great and wonderful day with all of his holy ones, I pray that we would be found in relationship with him then, even as we are now. Lord, help us to live good lives for you that bring honor and glory to your name. It is in the name of Christ that we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at in the word.com.